Driven to Fail is part of the Haggerty Podcast Network. James Hinchcliffe is Canadian. This is only relevant because he's also a famously nice guy, and because he is a racing driver, and finally because he spent a decade in a cockpit in IndyCar, where drivers are not often Canadian and even less genuinely nice people. Hinchcliffe is now a broadcaster for NBC Sports and Formula One TV. He's just 35, not young for an athlete, especially at the top of motorsport, but when he retired from IndyCar last year, it was by choice. He had to admit that the battle was getting harder. Hinch had seen a lot behind the wheel, only six wins over 10 years, plus a grueling 220-mile-an-hour accident that put a steel suspension pushrod clean through his leg and nearly killed him. In 2018, one of his childhood friends, Robert Wickens, joined his team, this incendiary and once-a-decade talent, only to be paralyzed in a crash that made headlines around the world. Now, on the surface, admitting that life has changed in ways you don't necessarily want is pretty simple, but it hits us in complex ways. Inch knows what he doesn't know, which is part of why he's such a good broadcaster now, but it's also why he's so honest about his stumbles. In this podcast series, we examine what happens when things go wrong in the world of cars, what we learn after fall, how we use that knowledge to get better, and how getting back up helps make us who we are. I'm Sam Smith. I'm a journalist and a club racer, and I love stories. Welcome to Driven to Fail. Okay, um, I don't know, man. So you were just in Abu Dhabi and you didn't sleep and how was it what what the hell was going on over there besides F1 and you were there for F1 what did you do yeah besides walk around uh, a paddock well I mean that's largely my job uh so no I was there I was there working with uh, F1 TV so um the way it works over there there's you know one kind of broadcast feed that goes out and it gets blasted out to whatever country wants to buy it and you either buy a blank feed and put your own broadcasters over it or you can buy the English language feed, for example, which is what we do in the States and in Canada, and it's the Sky Sports broadcast. But then if you don't have TV and you don't have ESPN, for example, which is where it plays here, you can go online to F1 TV and they do their own online streaming service, which is a completely different broadcast team. And I got asked to uh, to jump in for three of the last four races and you know play around with our old buddy Will Buxton and, and the crew over there. Uh, calling a couple F1 races. So I was, yeah, I was out in the middle of the desert and talking about Formula One cars going around in circles. That's that's super cool, right? So, and I want to come back to that in a second because one of the interesting things about your career is the changes you've made and how and why you've reacted to things changing. And I, I want to talk about that in a minute, but let's let's go backward for a second. So one of the reasons you're in broadcasting is because of who you are and how you work, right? You know, you had this long, have this long career as a solid, dependable guy on a race car and you know, 10 years in IndyCar to date. But the thing that everybody tends to remember about you is that you are, you're a human, right? And, and I mean that in the way that like most, this is not at all a knock against the breed, but most pro drivers have kind of serious problems being themselves in front of a camera on a mic. And you just kind of, we spent a little bit of time together and I've always kind of gotten the sense that hinch is hinch is hinch, right? Like the person you are at home is the person you're on camera. And that's rare, but one of the things I find really interesting about that is that, you know, in motorsport, everything hangs on who you are in the car, but just as important as how you get through the business to get in the car in the first place. And you being you helped solve problems, got your deals, got your TV time, helped you sell and made you a name that, you know, in the paddock and in the stands, everybody, everybody loved, even in years where, you know, the result in the car might not have been ideal. 
But what, I, what I'm getting at here is, so I was a pretty quiet kid. I was shy. I was introverted. And a long time ago, I kind of realized that I had to, had to take that stuff and figure out how to be the me that I was around my family, around the rest of the world. And, and you, you seem so natural with who you are on camera compared to so many other drivers. Was that, was that ever a conscious decision? Was it, was it ever difficult or did it always, was it always just you being you and that's how it works? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was in a lot of ways, a conscious decision, but it wasn't difficult. I, it's funny, you know, I've talked about this with my family at various points in my career and one point seems to come up or like, this was, this was kind of the best conclusion we could draw was I had a, I had a weird um, path through elementary school. So I went to four different elementary schools. And that meant that at four different points of my adolescence, I was the new kid and had to learn, you know, how to make friends at a really awkward age and how to talk to people. And, uh, I don't, I actually don't think I was an inherently outgoing person necessarily, but I quickly learned, you know, I was surrounded by a bunch of different people and a bunch of different groups over a course of that sort of eight year period and had to sort of find who I was going to be because I was changing my friends pretty regularly. And so I sort of found myself a little bit in that time. And then, you know, I, I was very conscientious of how lucky I was to get to do what I was doing. And this goes all the way back to when I first started driving race cars back in like 2004, when I was doing formula BMW and we were supporting champ car races and formula one races and all this stuff. And I'm 17. I'm like, this is insane. Like nobody should get to do this at any age, Never mind at 17. And I, and so, so the conscious decision part was to, to enjoy it. And, you know, I, I raced with a lot of guys and this certainly became more true. The, the further down the road you go, a lot of guys were very different people at the track than away from the track. And right. that's fine. I don't, I don't, I don't criticize that approach. I, that's totally whatever works for you. Right. But for me, it was always, I wanted to be myself. Cause I think that if I was myself, I was enjoying myself. And if I was enjoying myself, I would dr actually drive better and perform better. You know, I wasn't one of these guys that had to show up to the track, just like angry at the world or, you know, like whatever it is that makes certain guys tick. That was never my, my thing. And so, yeah, I was always just myself. I never took myself too seriously outside of the car, even when I was at the racetrack. And, and you're right, who I, who you saw at the track all those years, kind of, you know, class clown, kind of goofy, whatever. That's who I am all the time. And you know, the, that switch flips when you get in the race car and you put the visor down and all that stuff. Sure. But yeah, I was always, I was always trying to very consciously just enjoy it and, and be myself and kind of just be authentic. Was there, is, is there something about, because you know, so many, so many people in the business think that there is a way you have to be as a racing driver, right? Even down to the language you end up using, you know, <laughs> firing the car into the corner, you know, the, 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 we didn't get the results we were, we, we were hoping for today. You know, the fact that so many tropes pop up, everybody ends up kind of molding themselves either consciously or unconsciously to be a certain kind of person. Is that, is it, is that the kind of thing that people are aware of doing in a paddock? I mean, when you, what is it about that environment that makes people all sort of turn into the same person the moment there's a mic in front of them or the moment they have a sponsor deal or, you know, the moment the hat goes on, right? Pure fear. 
<laughs> and so, it's, so literally what gets me through all of my days. This is good. To correct. Know. Correct. Yeah. The fueled by fear. And it's the fear of losing it. It's the fear of yeah. losing that sponsor, losing that opportunity or, you know, saying the wrong thing that pisses off some fan that blows you up on Twitter that your sponsor then sees. And you no, know, we can't support somebody that hates this group, you know, like inadvertently through some innocuous comment. And so, you know, especially in, in I look, I, I was in the uh, Formula Atlantic slash Indy Lights level in. So I was like one step away from making it when 2008 happened. Right. And I start. So actually, sorry, let's take a step back. I started my junior formula car career in 2004, the year after the first year that tobacco money was no longer allowed in the sport. Right. So that was like the beginning of the dark ages for open wheel motorsports in North America, because for so long, the sport was quite literally fueled by tobacco money. And for 20 years, all you had to do was like find whichever tobacco company wasn't already sponsoring a car, call them up and be like, Hey, can we have 25 million bucks? They're like that it? Sure. No problem. Right. And so like these teams were actually like actually incapable of finding actual sponsors because they never had to do it. So 2003 happens and they're all sitting there like, I don't know. And it really, that's when the impetus really switched and the model switched where the driver was as responsible, if not more responsible for going out and finding the money to go, to go racing. So that was the first picture. So I, I came in at like literally the beginning of the end. And so I was like, great, <laughs> cool, great, awesome. And then we, so we managed to get up a couple rungs and then you're one below the, you're trying to get there. And then 2008 happens and just all money disappears. Like money ceases to exist in the world. And so it was a really challenging time to be coming up through the sport. So when you managed to trick some company into giving you money to go racing, you were like, I can't screw this up, right? You just were, you lived in this constant state of fear that you were like going to wake up to an email being like, you know what? This isn't for us anymore. Cause sometimes that's all that happened. <laughs> or like, you know, that CEO that loved this program, he just announced his retirement. The guy that's replacing him or girl that's replacing him, they don't like racing. So you're screwed. <laughs> and so like, so I get it. I get that drivers got stuck in this, this, bubble of feeling like they had to use PR speak and tag those like and tow those lines. And I actually admire the hell out of people like Connor Daly, who has just been unadulterated Connor Daly his entire life. Right, and right, says right. like he's got some of the best sound bites. He's got the most character of anyone that's driving race cars today. And um and like to a less to a in a similar sense, but to a lesser degree, a guy like Kyle Bush. I don't understand how Kyle Bush got away with saying some of the shit that he said for as long as he did. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this show. Yeah, but, I will bleep it. Fine. All right. He so he he said some of the most like like offensive things about his teams and sponsors and cars and whatever. And it like I just nobody cared because he won. Like he could get away right, with it because right. he was he's a bad, bad, fast racing driver and could win at any time and anything. So he kind of got away with it, but like I had a text chain with buddies in the in the sport. Who like every time Kyle said something outrageous, we'd send it to the group. Like, how does he do it? Like, how is he allowed to just be this guy? We were partly jealous and partly like shocked and appalled. But yeah, it's just it all it all comes it all comes from fear of losing what we've been given. Well, it's funny because it's almost like there's two two tiers, right? On the one end, on the absolute top, they're the guys that are so good and so entrenched and such a brand that they could do whatever they want. And then at the bottom, they're the people who are never going anywhere and nobody pays attention to them and they can go do whatever they want. And the second middle tier is where like results matter, but at the same time, how you sell matters just as much. And it doesn't matter if you're insane in the car, right? This is it's where this I lived for balance. 11 years. <laughs> <laughs> this. You know, I was okay, like, so, so guys that fit in that, that former category are 
are guys like Kyle Busch and Stanley Talented could do whatever he wanted. Yeah. Paul Tracy back in the day, same thing. Kimi Raikkonen, right. Juan Montoya, these people that just had this insane innate ability that they could afford to just like not really care about anything else and they would still get hired. <laughs> I was not that good. I get that. So I, I had to be very much in line with what the sponsor wanted. Okay, well, but okay, so you say you're not that good, but at the same time, you know, remember, like, you know, for people who don't know, you know, an IndyCar grid it, for the past, hell, for the past decade has been defined by tenths and hundreds, right? You know, just simply being there is a certain level of talent, but at the same time, and skill, but, you know, you still have to, you still have to, everybody on that grid is trying every minute they are there looking for hundreds and, and scrapping for it, right? And what, what I find really interesting is so several years ago, I was in, I forget who it was, somebody's trailer in Portland, Long Beach. And, and we got invited to, you know, page through some data with an engineer and, you know, they were going through it and there's channels and channels and channels and traces and traces and traces, just like literally hundreds of things you can look at that I'm sure you've seen a billion times that explain out, you know, every last inch of where you are subpar in the car, right? And every last inch of what needs to be done, what you are doing well, what you're not doing well, you know, all of it, like just like anywhere else in racing, with the exception of the fact that, you know, in IndyCar, the margins are so close. So what is it like when you look at that data stream and you know, you know, you have work to do, but you don't know how to get there. Like, you know that so-and-so on the team or so-and-so is doing something and you know you can do it and you don't, you know, you can get from A to B, but you don't know what the steps look like in between. How's your head work in that moment? Well, I think there's, I think there's two different ways to approach it. You know, so I was always, I was always one of those drivers that really poured over a lot of data and really, really tried to learn because honestly, all the way back to my very first season of go-karting in 1996, I did not jump in a go-kart and set the world on fire, right? I, I got to where I was because I was, I was really hardworking. I would, I would analyze what I was doing right and wrong, and I would make myself better. I was very good at observation and application. So once you got to the part of the sport where you had data and you could have teammates and you could be like, okay, so we're going to go out for our first runs. This guy was quicker than me. Okay, why was he quicker than me? I could see it, and then I could immediately go apply it in the race car. And that, that was my strength as a driver was I, I worked yeah. really hard to get to that level. And there are times, yeah, where you just, you can see what the other guy's doing and you understand it in, in theory, <laughs> but every time you go into that corner, it just, it's just not happening. And so, you know, you have, you have two choices. You have keep trying until you pitch it off in that corner, or you look for somewhere else in the track where you have an advantage over them and try to try to make it even bigger in the area where you're stronger. Yeah. So there's there's what kind of it? two different ways to approach it. So are there are there moments where I mean there have to be right. I mean they may not be common for some people. They may be really common for other people. But you know there have to be moments where you know you need to do something in a car that the data says you can do, and you go out there and try and do it. And you didn't know you could do it, but you did it. Like how's your head work in that moment? Like what does it what does it do to your you know when you when you look at come back and you look at something or you know the guy gets on the radio and it's like oh shit we pulled that off. Then what is it? I mean you don't you don't have time to sit there and think about it and be like, Oh, okay, cool. But at the same time, is it ever demoralizing that you didn't see that in advance? Like, Oh shit, the car does this. I need to be doing this. This is how the setup X, Y, V, that, or is it just like, that's oh, one more piece of the puzzle and you move on. Yeah. You kind of just have to move on. Cause that's going to happen so many times over a race weekend <laughs> and never mind a season, never mind a career. Right, it's just right. part of it. Right. So you can't, you can't get hung up on all the times that, the first run of the day or the first run of a session, someone else does a corner better than you or something. You just, you just, you, you kind of get used to that side of it. And hopefully you're learning every time that happens and it just happens less and less frequently as you move on. <laughs> 
is it so that but and that's i realize that's part of what you sign up for right like every race everything changes every track every you know every weather change everything is it's the sisyphean chase to try and get to a certain place and you'll never get there it doesn't matter how good you are you you are never the problem is never solved right is that ever frustrating or is it just and especially in a series that close or is it just like part of part of the process and you accept it and you don't ever do you have to make a choice to not get frustrated by it or is it simply not frustrating to begin with no it's not i think you're i think you're fueled by the challenge of it you know i think huh. even when you are p1 in a session there's always something that you can you can right. look back on and say oh i could have done this better or if the car if the car had this adjustment maybe we could have done this corner quicker and you know there's there, there's that that saying right i don't know where it comes from but it's like you've you've no one's ever driven the perfect lap and right. I think as a as a driver, you know that, you understand that, you accept that. And that's part of the fuel, right? Is it doesn't matter if you're the fastest car, the next session you're gonna go out there and try to go faster still. It's like we're we're all just a bunch of Sisyphuses on the on the grid, just <laughs> constantly trying to push push that thing right. up the hill right. as as best we can. So okay, so on that note, so you know, you you recently you're not in the car this year, right? Ten years in the series and we we don't need to rehash it, but what is it like when, you know, that, that's not an immediate process. It's not like you wake up one day and go, oh, cool, this isn't happening next year. Like that's a, that is a long transition where you realize certain deals aren't happening. Certain things aren't coming together. You know, if this, that, and the other is not going to work, when you start to get the inkling that, you know, no matter how much hustle you put it, put into it, the deal isn't going to come together for this year. And you're stepping away for the dream for a minute from, you know, where you've been for a decade. You don't know how it's going to play out. What is, is that a, how do you process it? What, what does that look like? Well, I think I, you know, in my case in particular, it was, it came down to a bit of a decision of, okay, so this, there's not just a deal sitting there. Do I want to go through the effort and yeah. the hustle and, and the slog of trying to put it together to maybe not get it, or you do get it, but it might not be the program that's really worth doing. And so, you know, I reached a point where I was like, I've done it for 11 years. I've been through some stuff. I've seen some stuff. I'm not sure that the passion is worth the effort in a sense anymore. And I was kind of willing and ready to take a step back and see what else was, you know, in life. Cause you got to think about it, man. Like for sure yeah. it was 11 years in IndyCar, but it's 20 years of waking up every morning being right. like, how can I be better at my job? How can I be a better racing driver today? What do I have to do? And it wasn't until I kind of made the decision that, yeah, you know what, we're going to step back. We're not going to chase anything. This is just kind of how it's played out. And I'm okay with that. I woke up the next morning and I physically felt lighter getting out of bed. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, this is a different feeling. This is, and you know what? It's kind of nice. This is not <laughs> terrible. So, uh, so that, I mean, that was it for me. It, it, it took, it took a little bit of getting used to for sure. But, you know, I, I did the deal with NBC and got to that first race and, you know, I was standing there, it was on Saturday right before qualifying and St. Pete was always one of my favorite races. And I remember thinking like, there are things that I miss. There's a lot that I don't. And so I felt like I was in the right spot, you know, and, and I, I was really lucky in that sense. I was lucky in the sense that I had something I could sort of immediately step into that a kept me yeah. busy, B kept me in the world that I've known my entire life. And, um, and I think it definitely, definitely made the whole transition a lot easier. 
how how far in advance for the next season? I mean, because you know the, the old line is like you know the the day of the Indy 500, people are working on on rides for the next Indy 500, right? But how far in advance do do you really does a guy like you really end up chasing you know the deal for next year? How much work and and how much time does that represent? Oh man, not just that race, but the season, right? Yeah, that's what's that's what's so tricky about this sport, right? Is if you're if you're fortunate enough to be in a position where everything on the car is just taken care of from a sponsor standpoint, which, you know, and I, I had a lot of years in my career like that. And then I had years at the, the, the front end and the back end that were not like that. And, uh, it's, it is all consuming and it, it does, it, it like massively detracts from you being the best at your job behind the wheel. Yeah. Uh, cause it is just, it's such an exhaustive process of trying to get a big company to write a seven figure check and make sure that you're delivering on that from not just in the car and on track, but all the other parts that go into it. You know, if it's your sponsor, yes, you then pay the team and the team's doing some of the work, but like you and your team, whoever that is, is also still kind of responsible and you feel a, a sense of responsibility and it's it's a massive amount of work and uh and it's yeah it's it's just it's just a, the time commitment the mental strain it's a lot does it get easier the more you do it no <laughs> no how come why cuz everyone's different i think if i think if you were doing just a year to year deal with the same company every year for 10 years yeah fine maybe yeah. um but if you have one company one year or for two years, something like that, and then you got to switch to a different company, uh, every company's got its own quirks. Every time it's a new group, you got to re-educate them on how motorsport sponsorship works, what the benefits really are, how to maximize it, how to utilize it, how to do all these things. And the number of conversations that you end up having where they're like, oh, yeah, I never thought about that. We're like, I know you didn't. That's why we're having this conversation again for the 14th time. But, but like, I get it. It's, it's such a unique world. And it's not right. so many people still think it's about, you know, the sticker on the car and people see it on TV. And it's just it's not about that. It's like the fifth most important part of a sponsorship in motorsports these days. One of the one of the things I, I know um, J.R. Hildebrand a little bit, and we were talking a couple of years ago about just the, the process of chasing this and how how just mentally exhausting it is. And one of the things he said was that it's gotten you know exponent. Everybody knows this, right? But he just put it very eloquently because he's an eloquent guy. But you know how this is the whole process has just gotten exponentially more difficult over the past ten years because at the core you are you know as as we look at resource burn and the environmental aspect you know at the core you are still trying to convince someone to pay money for you to drive around in circles and burn resources for right. basically just attention and there's nothing wrong with that in in a certain light but in a lot of other lights it's very very hard to sell someone because just that's how the world works right. But it's it's such a it's such a strange ecosystem, and and the more the more I learn about it, the more the stranger it gets. You know, how did you how did you end up in broadcasting? How'd that come about? What's what's weirdly ironic is it's actually it was actually my first career. <laughs> <laughs> really? So when when I was in the Atlantic series, so we were support to Champ Car back in the day. Yeah. The the Champ Car series had two broadcasts. One was the domestic broadcast, which is what we would see on you know ABC or whatever. Um, Rick Benjamin was was the lead guy on that, and that's what played in North America. Then there was the international feed, which is what we blasted out to uh, 170 countries. And if you weren't you know getting ESPN or ABC in the states, basically that's what you saw. 
But at the time, Champ Car didn't have like a massive global appeal. So it was kind of like the, even though it was the international one that was going out to 170 countries, it was very much like the redheaded stepchild of the TV production. And that was essentially led by Jeremy Shaw. So he was not only the lead guy in the booth, he was the only guy in the booth. He had to do the, all the races by himself. And so his sort of MO was over the weekend, if he ran into somebody that he, that was there visiting that he knew, or, you know, if, if a, if a driver had won one of the support races that weekend, he, he would invite people up to the booth for 10, 15 minutes, you know, a segment of the race, uh, just to kind of help bridge the gap, you know, you know, burn some time essentially. So I'd known Jeremy for a couple of years and I'd, and I'd been up and visit him in the booth before. And so in 2006, is that right? Yeah. 2006, we were at the race in Houston. I think it was like maybe the second race of the year. And, uh, yeah, I ran into him in the paddock on Saturday and he was like, Hey man, why don't you come up to the booth for the start of the champ car race? Stay for a segment or two. And I was like, yeah, sure, man. So I did the Atlantic race and then got out of my car, ran in my trailer, got changed, ran up to the booth, threw a headset on me. Producer comes in my ear and says, hi, my name's Sharon. You're live to 170 countries. Don't swear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Cool. cool. Right on. Yeah. So, yeah. So like in the past, when I had gone up to see him, <laughs> I would, I would come in in like the middle of the race. Right. And I talked for, you know, between two commercial breaks and then I'd bugger off and that was it. So this is the first time I was there from the top of the show and whatever, whatever. So we get through, I think we'd got through the start of the race and like to the first commercial break. And then he looks over at me and goes, well, do you want to stay for another one? So I said, yeah, I got nothing to do. I'll stay for another one. So I stay for another one. At the end of the second one, he looks over and he goes, do you want to just stay for the rest of the race? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I was going to watch the race anyway, so I, I got the best seat in the house. I might as well just stay here and chat about it with you. So we finished the race together. And then when the race finished, he took his headset off. He looked at me and goes, what are you doing next week? And so for the rest of the season, I would get out of my Atlantic car on Sunday, early <laughs> afternoon, get changed, run up to the booth, and I would help Jeremy call the international broadcast of the Champ Car yeah. Races. yeah. And then the following year, they actually hired me to do it. Oh, my goodness. Somebody <laughs> was paying me to talk about motor cars. This was great. And so I, I got like two years of completely undeserved booth experience, like calling a top level sport. I had friends that went to school for broadcast journalism that were still like fetching coffees for people at networks. And here I was, it's like completely, like I said, completely under, I had no right to be there, but I was in the right place at the right time. And Jeremy gave me a shot and I ended up doing it essentially for two years for fun. And it just, it gave me such a great sense of what it's like to do, how the system works. I learned a ton from Jeremy. He's he's just such a legend. Um, so I always kind of had in the back of my head that when I was done driving, I'd love to try some broadcasting. And so when 2020, I had a partial season and NBC reached out and they were like, well, hey, in the races you're not driving in, do you want to come work for us in pit lane? And I said, yeah, sure. Let's get some experience doing that. Keeps you at the track, whatever. So I did that. And then when I got to the point, you know, at the end of 21, near the end of 21, where I was kind of making this call that I probably was going to be stepping back, I reached out to uh, to NBC and they were like, yeah, man, absolutely. Here you go. Here's the deal. Let's, let's go make some TV magic. And that was that was it. I've, I've done a little bit of broadcast work. I, you know, I love the challenge, but what, what hit me is, is just the notion. The first time I did it was just the, the notion that it looks so easy and it's just 
anything but, right? Like you have somebody in your ear feeding you a constant feed of information, or maybe that's, you know, papers being handed to you. You know, there are sometimes monitors sitting in front of you with feeds and feeds of feeds of what's going on. And you have to synthesize all of that in real time with no delay while talking to somebody, while also watching what's going on. And and, and a lot of it, you know, a lot of it resembles, and other drivers have mentioned this, but just how a lot of it resembles racing in general, right? You're dumped into the circus in front of thousands of people, millions of people maybe, and you have a lot of help, but ultimately it's you and you sink or swim. What, what, was, the, what was the learning curve like then versus what it's like now? Because those are, two, I mean, you're it's a long time ago, right? You're a different guy. You mean the learning circle from broadcasting back then to now? No, yeah, just I the mean, learning curve. Yeah, from, oh yeah, but I mean like or from being what, in the car to broadcasting. No, no, no. Being being in the booth, figuring out how it works and how to wrap your head around it and adapting, right? And because it's a skill. It's like like anything else. Anybody can learn to do it. It's how much how much you want it, right? For sure. And I mean for me, the when I did it the first stint, my my first broadcasting career, I mean I I was very aware that I had no right to be there and I was just, I was just, <laughs> I was just there to help Jeremy in any way I could. So yeah. I just really ran off his cues. You know, he took the lead and, and dragged me along and, and kind of showed me where to go and what to do. Um, at that point, you know, that's when I started learning how to watch the race from a timing and scoring screen sort of thing while keeping my eye on what was happening on the program monitor, because I liked being able to find things that were happening that we could then talk about. Cause it wasn't being shown on the screen, but I would see timing and scoring stuff. And again, I, I'm a data guy. So that was always kind of fascinating to me, but I very much was just kind of like, I don't know. I was decorative furniture in that broadcast, you know, like I was, it was nice, <laughs> you know, it's nice. It's there, but it didn't get used that much. And like, it was, I was, if it disappeared, it wouldn't really change anything too much. <laughs> so for me, it was more just a learn. I was just more just taking stuff in. And then it's funny. It's funny you use the term sink or swim because I, you know, I get the deal with NBC and um, about to start this new adventure. And Townsend Bell calls me up. And he's like, "Hey, man! Like, really excited. Welcome to the team. Um, I bet you think you're going to get like a lot of preparation." documents and information <laughs> from the network and i was like yeah i mean like, i assume i'm getting like a handbook on the do's and don'ts maybe a couple seminars i got to sit through or whatever he was like yeah none of that's coming um they hired you because they think you can do it and you're gonna either prove them right or wrong and that's how it works and i was like holy <laughs> that's his what they're just gonna right. give me a right. microphone right. and a, a, to all these people and just say good luck figure it out so that that part was a huge challenge I mean, getting to work with, with Lee and Townsend has just been awesome. I mean, they're such pros. They've been doing it yeah. forever. And so, but, but you're right. You're looking at four or five monitors on top of the program monitor, which is the only one you can actually talk about. That's like one of the golden rules you learn. And then you've got a producer in your ear. You've got a stats guy throwing you notes. I'm trying to watch timing and scoring. Townsend's monitoring a lot of the pit stop stuff. And then you, and so on top of all that, you then have to get into this rhythm with the other guys in the booth with you. You know, you've got to figure out who plays what role and uh, understand whose job is what, whose specialty is what, get the cadence down, the like, the, all the hand signals that happen that you guys can't. Like, if you put a camera in the booth while we were actually doing it, it'd be comical. <laughs> you just see hands moving around and right, guys' mics right. muted, trying yeah. to talk to the stats guy. And you got, you know, like papers being handed over Lee's shoulder for a read he's got to do. And like, it's it is a circus. So the what I like about it is is a lot of it is there's a lot of similarities to racing, right? Live TV is very it's a cool rush, right? Cuz like you have a 2-hour window 
there are no there are no redos, right? You don't get to do a take and then or you don't get to rehearse. You don't do that. We have a rough plan, like you do at the start of a race. You sit down with your strategists and you have a rough strategy meeting and plan A, B, C, D out. And then it starts and all your plans go out the window and you're just sort of shooting from the hip. And so in that sense, there's a lot of similarities. And that's what I like about it is it is a rush, right? And then you, you do it and you, you call this race and it's crazy and there's action and all this stuff. And there's things you got to know how to do and stories you got to know how to tell. And then the race ends and then the feed ends and everything goes. And everyone's just like, oh, and it's like high fives all around. It's like, great show, man. It's like great race. Great race. It's like the same feeling as when you pull back in the pits after race, you get out, you high five all your mechanics. Like, man, we survived another one. Good job. That was good. It was fun. <laughs> I love, I love the idea of the plan going out the window, right? Like, I love any, any environment where, you know, what, what's the old Mike Tyson quote? Something like everybody has a plan to like get punched in the face. Like, I love the idea <laughs> that you are signing up for a job where your job is to get punched in the face. And that's what's so yes. great about guys like Diffie and Townsend. Like I sat in the booth with them once at Toronto and both of them were just like fire hoses and Diffie in particular, you know, he's getting handed things left and right. Shit comes on the screen and he's just moving constantly. And the, like, you can see that the guy's brain's going a million miles a minute and the stuff that comes out on mic is just, it, it's like he planned it. It's nuts. I mean, it's just, it was this galaxy brain moment into what, what actually makes it work and how difficult it is. Right. But yeah, I mean, watching him have all these different inputs that are right. coming at him, but like yeah. the, the output, the output is just one smooth, silky right, smooth right. stream of beautiful storytelling that is coming from this like blender of stuff just being shoved in his head. And he just produces this, this smoothie of excellence, you know, verbal <laughs> excellence. He sees an absolute pro. So, okay. So you said you were in, you're in F, you've been doing some of the F1 TV broadcasts and you're in Abu Dhabi, uh, but I'm curious. So because an F1 paddock is is such a different place from literally anywhere else in motorsport. You know, that that paddock works unlike any other paddock in racing, uh, just in terms of where, you know, the figurative guards and, ga excuse me, where the, the walls and gardens are, like what's what's roped off, how how that cutthroat little ecosystem functions. And it, I mean, it makes, it makes an IndyCar paddock look like summer camp, right? And I've had drivers tell me that, you know, coming apart there, like having a bad weekend in F1 just feels different it's much lonelier than anywhere else because of the way that you know a thousand reasons the way sport works the way the politics works the way the money works the way the media is all of it, right but what what did you notice when you first jumped into that pool walking around and you know synthesizing information because like racing drivers just look at that stuff anybody who's spent time in the cockpit looks at that stuff a little differently like what, what struck you about it i mean first and foremost it, it seemed like it <sighs> And, and maybe my, maybe my opinion on this have developed a little bit over the three events, but the first event, certainly I walked around and I was like, everybody here is afraid for their job. Like everybody here is <laughs> right, walking around right. like someone's looking right. over their shoulder at every single thing they do and move they make. They act like drivers feel, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> drivers feel about this. They're, they're going to constantly lose their sponsors. So everyone just acts around like they're on the most important mission that's ever been bestowed upon a human being. And I'm like, guys, just chill. This is, we're just going racing here. This is re relax. You know, and it was the, the marketing people, the mechanics, the engine, it does. Everyone just was so high strung, but you're, but you are under a microscope. And I think that's the other side of it, right? Is when you think of an IndyCar race, right? You've got one television provider, you've got you know, we've got a, a handful, dozen or so, you know, dedicated media personnel that are that you know that are kind of on the beat and and travel around with us and whatever. Um, so you can you can sneak under the radar if you have a bad weekend, right? Right. 
because there's another story to tell, right? Yeah. But in F1, there seems to be at least one media outlet dedicated to each driver, right? There's like the Japanese <laughs> outlet that just wants to know how Sonoda does. And there's like the Spanish um, outlets that are just looking at Fernando and Carlos. And it's just like, so if you have a bad weekend, maybe maybe Sky Sports doesn't cover it a ton, but someone's gonna. <laughs> Someone's definitely going to know. Like the number of times I remember like having a bad weekend in IndyCar and getting out of the car and just feeling like the whole world was coming in on you until you got out of the track and you're like, oh, I don't think anybody noticed. Or like you rewatch the broadcast and expect it to just be like just running a train on you for how bad a weekend you had. And it's like, oh, no, no, they just don't mention you. That's <laughs> awesome. Like nobody is noting how bad our right. race went for whatever right. the reason was. Right. Like, I just, you just don't get away with that in F1. It just doesn't matter where in the grid you are. Somebody is paying very close attention and is is going to write all about it. <laughs> so, I mean, the notion of of bad weekends, right? I mean, and we don't. I don't want to go too deep into this um, in in terms of how it worked, right? Mainly because you've rehashed this a thousand times, and the accident itself isn't the point. But you had a, a relatively mild-looking accident in 2015, and it was one of those things that, because of how the media works, you you know you probably got more airtime because of that accident in the weeks that followed than any other driver in the series for the rest of the season, which can be frustrating, you know, for a lot of people who follow follow the sport, follow racing in general, love it, grew up with it. You know, you care about so many things, and especially in America, you know, where IndyCar gets you know maybe a blip on national TV if something goes wrong or somebody gets really hurt and nobody cares but this accident in particular seemed seminal in part because there was an element of risk to it and forgive me i know you've been down this road a billion times i have to i have to rehash it for people who don't know so you're running in traffic at indy during practice for the 500 in 2015 and then you wake up in the icu and your family is there you can't talk because you're on a ventilator and you're nodding your head because you've heard this a thousand times i'm so sorry it's no no but but the the end result was you go into turn two more than 220 miles an hour suspension rocker fails right front comes off the car like you watch the video and your hands turn and then your hands turn more and then you go arm over arm car's not turning you go in the wall and the medics come to pull you out and you're stuck in the car because a push rod you know this almost two foot long piece of metal that transfers force from the bottom of the upright into the actual day into the rocker and the damper that ended up in your leg in an artery and you're swimming in your own blood they take you to the, the hospital trauma center crash gets like i said a lot of coverage and in 2015 it was a weird moment for anybody who cared about the sport because and IndyCar was not in a good place in terms of revenue, in terms of people showing up, especially at the bigger venues. Was it, was it frustrating to have to talk about this and that, even though it was you, right? Even though, you know, you, you had to figure out how to physically put your life back together. But there's so much else happening in the series, and all anybody wanted to talk about it was how James had a had a rod through his leg, and oh my oh my goodness, he was in his in his own blood. Like that had to have been, that had to have been a teeth grind element about that, right? Even for a pretty I mean, gracious guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I I think um, I mean you could argue it the other way and and say it was good that it took some media attention away from maybe some of the other things that weren't going great <laughs> in the series at the moment, you know. Um, <laughs> 2015 was the start of the manufacturer arrow kit 
uh, yeah. era, which went really well for one manufacturer out of the gate and didn't go particularly well for another manufacturer out of the gate. And, you know, one of the reasons that they wanted to do this was because they wanted the cars to be able to look different. So you could identify which one was a Honda and which one was a Chevy right out of the, and like, didn't like, <laughs> I mean, I guess it kind of, like, you'd have to be pretty, pretty right. well versed on aerodynamics to realize yeah. that was a Chevy front wing versus a Honda front wing sort of thing. So I don't think it had that desired effect. It created a massive gap in the racing. Whereas 12 through 14 with the universal kit, the racing had been the best it had been in 10 years. Um, so yeah, for sure. There were some, there were some challenges, but I don't, uh, I think, I think we understand and understood kind of where we, where we stood in the national conversation. And so something like that was obviously going to get more attention and, yeah. you know, and honestly, like 2015 only got worse, right. Cause we ended right. up losing Justin later that year. And, yeah. uh, yeah, it was, it wasn't a great year, um, for the series in a lot of ways, but, I I think as a series we rebounded pretty nicely from it, and uh, I managed to turn my story at Indy a year later into a better story. So that helps, you know, people talk about it in a positive way. And now look, man, like I've said it before, and I'll say it again: in some weird ways, for some weird reasons, the accident was the best thing that ever happened to me on a personal <laughs> level. So uh, so yeah, I mean, it's it's all just kind of part of the story. <laughs> it was funny. There was this blitz. I just remember, you know, at, at the time we had a, a pretty young, young daughter. We still have young daughters, but it, there was this blitz at the time. And I remember thinking it was an awful lot. You know, it was, you were held up as the boy who lived, right? There was this Harry Potter element to it, but you know, how do you, <laughs> and, and just the way you were trotted out in interviews over and over and over again. And you're so very good on camera to the point where I watch him. Like he's given the same speech a thousand times. And this is a thousand and one. And it looks like the first time, but how do you, how do you prep yourself to give these or how do you even think about that? How do you flip a reset switch in your brain to give the same answers to these deeply personal questions a dozen times, a hundred times? I mean, I, I can't tell the same story about what happened, you know, to, when I spilled the coffee in the kitchen, you know, oh, twice, right? It doesn't come out the same way twice. How, how do you clock your head so that you don't come off like, and then I went into the wall and oh, there was a push rod. Oh my goodness, there was some blood. How does it work? <laughs> Oh my God, there's blood everywhere. There's so much blood. <laughs> right. I said no power tools. Right. Second, second obscure movie reference. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think, I think when, you know, going back to, you know, what we spoke about earlier about me wanting to always just kind of be authentically me at the track and in my life in general, um, I found the idea of, of being someone else exhausting, frankly. <laughs> And so I've, I've always, you know, I I've find always... the idea of being me exhausting, but I still have a way yeah. to do it. But, but yeah, but imagine having to be someone else, but still be you. It's, it's twice as much work. So I, uh, I think I was, I was always, I was always very comfortable sharing that experience. Yeah. Um, I, I, it definitely helped by the fact that there were, there were two big factors that helped me not really mind reliving it in that way as often as I had to. The first was that it wasn't a mistake that I made, right? If I had just right. screwed up and that was the result and people wanted to talk about my screw up over and over, it wouldn't have even <laughs> been the, the near death experience that would have bothered me. I would have talked about that all day long. It was the fact that it stemmed from my mistake, like as a driver, <laughs> as a competitor, that's what would have hurt way more than being skewered by a push rod. Um, and then I, I had no, I had no actual memory of the, of the crash of the extrication of any of that stuff. Right. So it wasn't like I was reliving some physically painful event. 
all the pain came afterwards in hospital. And I found a way to just sort of disassociate that from the wreck in any way, or <laughs> a race car or the racetrack. I just, I convinced Wait, myself I had how a car you, accident. How do you do that? You, you convince your, a bad car accident? How do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. You just do it. You just tell yourself, oh yeah, I had an accident. Accidents happen. Accidents yeah, but it's like, it's like saying the, don't all the time. It's like saying, don't think about pink elephants. You automatically think about pink elephants. I mean, <laughs> yeah. fair, but again, I wasn't telling myself to not think about it. I was just telling myself to think about it in a different way. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And so I, I just never associated it with the race car. I never associated it with Indianapolis. I just, I just totally, you got to think, you got to remember athletes in general are from a very young age trained to compartmentalize right. emotion and, right. and things altogether. This was just a really extreme version of that, which I had been practicing my entire career. So, so I didn't mind telling the story and you get to a point where I'm sure the first 10 times I told it, there were different iterations of certain parts, <laughs> right? Yeah. But then after a while, you you kind of like, oh, well, it sounded better when I said this this way, you know? And so by 11, 12, 15, you kind of just, ha each, it's just muscle memory, right? You're just pumping <laughs> out the same, but I, you know, you do try, I do try, I did always try to like, not just sort of like, and then this, and then that, and then that, because, well, of course. Yeah. you know, you understand that whatever audience was listening to the first person you told it to is probably not the audience that yeah. the second person has right. or the third person or the 10th person. So you, you try to, and, and it's a, it's a scary story, right? So you want to, you want to have some humility about it and not just try to brush it off. Like, I'm not trying to be like, yeah, I got skewered. No big deal. We're, I'm back in a car. Who cares? Like it's, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a big deal. I get it. I love, I love talking to, you know, you mentioned compartmentalizing, right? I love, love talking to athletes about how they put things away. Um, we had Ross Bentley on the show a couple, couple episodes ago, and he was talking about research that, you know, he's, he's worked with, worked with trained professionals and psychologists to, you know, delve into what, what makes flow state happen, right? You know, what they call the zone for athletes. And, and I love figuring out all this gray matter stuff that's really fuzzy logic in between like stuff we just do, how, how we figure out kind of subconsciously how to make things work. But you, know, you mentioned, you mentioned earlier and you, you gave an interview at one point talking about how, when you got back in the car, it was like, Oh, can I do this? And a lot of drivers talk about this, right? talked to a lot of drivers about coming back from accidents and they all say some version of the same thing, which is, I don't know if I'm going to be doing it and I get back in the car and I can do it. And it's like, Oh, well, okay. And then like one out of 10 of those guys will stop and say, well, you know, I thought about that every single lap or I thought about that every weekend. I did it for five more years. And then I realized it was time to quit. Or like, I mean, you go all the way back, like Sterling Moss, you know, and he had the great big accident at Goodwood that massively put him in the hospital and he got back in the car and he was never the same. Couldn't explain why couldn't pull it apart. He was just like, Oh, I guess guess I'm done. Like how did you, you said once that you were anxious in the moment you drove the car, it went away, but did that hold? Do you ever have flashes of that come back? That anxiety? Never. No. Really? Cool. I mean, it's, it's, uh, not, not from that. I mean, there were, there were probably other accidents that I had in my career that affected me more in that, in that sense. Really? Because again, I, I think it's because I don't remember it. And because <laughs> even though I went through all this, you know, pain and discomfort and all the other things that happen in the months afterwards, I never associated it with the race car. So it was just, it just wasn't even a thought for me. I mean, I had that same thought of wondering whether my brain would let me physically operate at that level ever again. Yeah. But I got back in the car and felt comfortable and had some of the best drives in my career in the years after that. So 
it didn't, it, that wasn't it. There were, yeah, there were, like I said, there were other things later that I think affected me more, but um, it's just drivers, they're weird. We have, we're wired differently and we lack the self-preservation gene that most humans are born with. Right. And that's just, that's just how we get through it. What, what were those other accidents like and why was it, was this stuff that was your fault or more things breaking or just getting caught up in a train of somebody else's mistakes or what? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think ones that were your fault stick with you a little more. Um, I think, you know, I, I witnessed some other, some accidents of other people that, you know, that stick with you a little bit. Um, and yeah, I just, just got to that. I think I started getting to that age and that point in life and everybody hits it at a different point. I mean, guys like Dixon haven't hit it yet and probably <laughs> never will. Or it was like, yeah, okay. Now I'm like, all right, now is it still worth the risk? Right. I mean, the, the year after my accident, it wasn't even a question, right? The only question is when I could get back in a car, not if, uh, and then, you know, whenever there's, it's that golden saying, right? If you ever are driving around and thinking about what would happen if, you know, you right. about getting it hurt, if be. something happened, you probably yeah. shouldn't be doing it anymore. Right. And the, it was starting to kind of come up in my head every once in a while. And so I'm like, all right, that's, that's a good a sign. It's a good sign. Like, it's just, it is what it is. Did it come up? Sometimes more often in some circumstances than others. I mean, you know, IndyCar is unique, right? Because speedways and because it's, I mean, what was it just a couple months ago? Dan, Dan Ricciardo was like, not in a million years, not going to do it. I'm just not built out of that kind of stuff. Like, does it, were there situations where you had those thoughts more often than others? Or is it just like, yep, in Ohio, uh, hey, I like my feet. Maybe I don't want to break them. You know, how, you how know, it's, it's interesting. I'm trying to think back if there were like certain, so like, for example, and maybe the uh, probably isn't super fair, but I'm, I'll say it anyway. Um, we, we got to the point at Texas where the racing was just so bad, <laughs> right? The track, once they did the repave and they ruined the surface and they, and they changed the layout and all the stuff that they did to it. Like, this is not, this is not news. I'm not breaking right. anything that yeah. many drivers haven't said yeah. since 2017, and, and the, the racing, it went from one of the most exciting races that was objectively a lot more dangerous, right? Because you could run side by side, two, three deep. And, you know, even when we didn't have like pack racing anymore, we still had some really close, you know, two wide racing, whatever. Now we were just running around in a line, absolutely unable to pass. But the track surface was so bad that if the slightest thing went wrong, you went a little wide. Someone took your air. Like you were going off into the fence and you're still going fast and it still really hurts. And there were times where you're like, man, I'm driving around in this line. There's nothing I can do. I'm faster than this car. There's nothing right. I can do. You yeah. try to put your, try to put your car three inches too far to the right in this corner. You're going to smoke the wall and that kind of accident. You can get a concussion, break a leg, break a hand. And I'm like, is it worth it? at a place where like, I'm not even having fun. Like this isn't fun. You know, like you go back to Texas 2016, there's that restart with 10 to go. And it was Graham, myself and TK in this absolutely insane, mental, ridiculous, stupidest bit of racing I have ever been a part of in my life, right? <laughs> All three of us should have ended up in the fence. And it was the best race. It was the most fun I've had in a race car probably my entire career. It was awesome. And you were like, yeah, we might have lined up on the fence, but this is fucking great. Like, I, yeah, sign me up. Let's do it again tomorrow, you know? And then, and then you, you switch and you're running 
six car lengths behind the car in front of you and the car behind you, six car lengths behind him and no one's near anybody, but you're like, this is stupid. This is stupider than what we were doing in 2016 because the risk <laughs> is almost as high and the enjoyment level is like a fraction of a fraction of what it was. So yeah, there were times like that where I'm just like, we got to do this 267 times this afternoon. That sounds <laughs> awful. It sounds terrible. Did those, so you, so those moments got more common or at least more frequent deeper into your career. Cause I mean, that's, that's one of the, the funny things about racing, right? Is that, you know, everybody, if you don't know anything about it, you think, ah, it's the guy in the car and like who built the blah, blah, blah. And who set up the blah, blah, blah. And you know, whatever. But there's so much that's out of control of the guy in the, at the wheel, right? That did, did those moments where you looked around and you're like, why are, why are we here? Did, did those get more frequent toward the end of your, end of your stint in IndyCar? Or no. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it was, I don't think it ever got to the point of like, why are we here? Yeah. But it was just, I don't know. Yeah. You just question yourself a little more often, I think, or like question the whole, whole thing a little more often. Um, but I mean, yeah, I honestly, there were, I think it was sometimes, it was honestly sometimes just more track related than anything else. Yeah. Um, there were certain tracks that just the racing, struggle and the other part of it is there were changes to the car that made the car less fun to drive as well even just right. in general and that's right. everywhere so you know even at like a mid-ohio i didn't drive around mid-ohio necessarily being worried about hurting myself even though there's a lot of things you can hit at mid-ohio and it's pretty quick uh or like a road america but i also just remember being like the cars are it's not the same the cars aren't the same. And you talk to a lot of the guys that had been around for several iterations of this car and maybe, you know, like my career started in the IRO3. So I had at least a season in that car before the DW12 came in. And we mean, we went through this awesome phase. Like the first six years of the DW12 were awesome, minus 2015. Not because of that, because of the body kit stuff. I mean, luckily I missed most of the season, so I didn't have to suffer through it like everybody else did. But 2012, 13, 14, 16, 17, man, it was great. And then even, you know, I don't know, they just took, they started taking a bunch of downforce away, adding a bunch of weight, which they had to do. It was all safety related. Right. But like I, my personal opinion is we just need a new car. We needed to yeah. build a new car that incorporates from the original design, all the safety improvements that we've made, which are great. Um, and not just have this sort of piecemealed Franken car that just weighs too much. And I don't know. It's, it's just a different, it's a different driving experience than it was. And it was, it was less enjoyable. What, what is it? You know, that's, there is no racing series that's been no sanctioning body, no car that's, that's been good forever. Right. And part of that is just the nature of the sport, how it moves on. Part of that is what drives the sport, where and how it makes its money and who makes the choices and what relationship they have to the money. But what is it about, what is it about racing's inherent ability to ruin itself? And I don't mean that like make itself worse, like, oh God, everything's awful. You know, I wish it was 1972. I mean that nothing the sanctioning bodies and the people in it, they're very, a friend of mine has this theory that, that everyone in professional motorsport is so focused on their own world, their own globe and the next weekend and the next weekend after that, that seeing the, the larger picture is inherently more difficult. And that, that can encompass everything from, you know, what, what the fan product is to, you know, whether you shouldn't go back to track X or whether, you know, this, this deal with these people for that reason actually produces something that's good for the series. Like, what is it about these organizations that makes it so difficult for them to kind of, you know, muster up and, and move forward and, and actually do anything productive for their own ends? I mean, I, 
30 years ago, you know, Dan, 40 years ago, God, you know, Dan Gurney famously wrote a problem on a white paper on the problems with IndyCar. And those are still in a lot of ways, the problems with IndyCar now, right? Or any professional motorsport. Why is it so difficult to solve this stuff? There are so many different stakeholders that have an opinion and ultimately have a say. Um, it's very difficult to ignore any one of them because then they'll just leave and then you don't have a sport anymore. So, right, right. you know, what's beneficial for the teams might not be beneficial for the drivers, might not be beneficial for the series, might not be beneficial for the OEMs. And all four of those groups have a very key part to play and trying to get you know, you know, you're an inherently competitive environment where you are trying to do things that are good for you. And if it's not good for the other guy, well, be damned. I'm sorry. It's not my problem. <laughs> so it's a very, very tough thing to balance. And I think the fact that every, every motorsport at every level in every class of car faces the same thing yeah, continuously right, right. and will indefinitely it just shows it's, it's not that we're doing anything wrong. We're just in a very twisted right, sport. Right. So I, I want to shift for a minute. Um, this is kind of a hard left turn, but I don't, we're, we're almost running out of time, but there's one more thing I want to get to. Um, going back to the, the idea of how you come back things, come back to things, right. And come back from moments and events that don't work well. So a couple of years ago, um, when I was on staff at Road and Track, I did a profile of a friend of yours, a guy you grew up with, by the name of Robert Wickens, who if anybody in America knows his name, it is because of what happened to him after he came to IndyCar. So you guys grew up together. You both wanted to be racing drivers. Your career was mostly in America, and he ended up taking a different path. He blasted through the feeder series at Europe, through GP3 and Formula Renault, and just was a monster at the wheel and ended up on the Mercedes DTM team. DTM team folded. He came to America and ended up in IndyCar. He ended up on a team with you. And he did pretty well in Europe, but his first year here, well, his year here, in 2018, he just has this banner season. And, and you know, pole in his first race, he wakes everybody up. He's just a beast in the car. And then toward the end of the year, with three races left to go, at Pocono, you know, Super Speedway, he crashes and he fractures his spine. He's nearly killed. He loses the ability to walk. And He's since made insane, just remarkable progress. One of the things, the, the focus of that, that profile that I did at R&T was I spent a couple of days with him in rehab, and I, I was struck by how, how he looked at, at everything. And I don't just mean life. I don't mean repairing yourself. I don't just mean persistence. I mean the whole big, nasty mess of why we do what we do. But what, what I found really just deeply compelling about the guy is that he he looks at problems in a way that's common to every racing driver and they say those they 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 say the same things but not all of them react the same way when things go wrong so you were in you were kind of sort of caught up in the crash that that resulted in his injury right mm -hmm. so you knew you knew it was bad but the guy's your childhood friend what what is was it like when you realized the depth of what had happened and how how did that impact how you looked at the sport, your risk, his risk, all of it? How, what went? It's a trite question, forgive me, but I, what went through your head? Yeah, I mean, Rob's deal was was very, very difficult, you know, to sort of navigate. And I think, obviously, you know, you say that with a caveat, like knowing that it was obviously 
<laughs> not right. it was not difficult for anybody but him like right. the, it, it was yeah. obviously um but no i you know i i i knew i knew it was bad but i had kind of thought that he broke his leg that was sort of the the information that we had kind of going to the hospital um and then it started kind of becoming apparent that it was a lot worse than that. And then when his family got there, they broke the news that they were worried about potential paralysis and all that sort of thing. And then, you know, I was, I was with him pretty frequently over the next, you know, four or five months when he moved out to Denver and, and started rehab out there. And, um, and then when he got back to, to Indianapolis and, you know, he's, he's one of the most inspiring characters, you know, you can never, you can never see. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's no doubt that seeing, you know, what, what happened to him and, and how it affected his life moving forward was, you know, something that definitely had an impact on me and, and made me look at certain things in my career, maybe a little differently. And, um, you know, at the same time, his, uh, his just, his, his attitude towards the whole thing, sort of like you say, the the way that he puts it all in perspective and uh, what he's gone on to achieve subsequently, I mean, it's it's mind blowing, right? So it's it's a catch twenty two. You could you could look at it as, oh, well, something like that could happen to me, or you could look at it as, oh, well, if something like that happened to me, you know, like he it was still that's right. I mean, it's it's not it's not the ideal outcome, but man, like he's he's still making the most of it and he's still like, he's still doing a lot of things and he's still impressing a lot of people and, um, and still living a great life. And so it, it kind of just depends how you want to, how you want to interpret the whole situation. Um, but it's, it's, like I said, it was super challenging seeing it all up close and, and being part of it. And, uh, and yeah, it affected me in a big way for sure. One of the things that I found just, I mean, I don't think I've ever had a conversation with anybody for through work or anything else stick with me the way talking to him did, you know, we, I went out there and spent, he was, you know, we initially pitched him on, on going out and spending a couple of days with him in rehab and, and naturally because anybody's going to look at that and go, why um, we had to explain that just wanted to, you know, get a sense of how he viewed the thing and not, you know, be creepy stalker or anything, but just try and show the world what he was dealing with, which is an awful lot. But I, I have to admit, I did not expect the guy to be as, and in retrospect, it's, clear why you guys are friends like I now that I think about it but I didn't expect him to be as open and honest and just deeply 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 honest about how he viewed it and how he viewed himself and how he viewed you know he's talking about the way he struggled through you know struggled in Europe and you know coming back from things being you know just the lowest of the low points that now compared to where he was was not that low and and it it got me thinking a lot about how we how we grieve, right? Which is not, I don't mean grieving death, but the, the dealing with something, some big change that we cannot undo in life. You know, where you first think you understand it, and then a while later, you get a slightly larger understanding of it. And then sometime after that, you get this other grander in, impression of just what happened. And that's kind of the impression you walk forward with. And that works for, you know, life changes, or deaths, or illnesses, or, or anything. But from talking to Rob, it was just so remarkable because he's so, and again, this is clear why you guys are friends, because he was so honest in a way that racing drivers aren't about the moments he's had that did not work. And, and it got me thinking a lot about how 
you know, I'm sure because every, every, we all sit here and, and pull apart everything we've done in our lives, good or bad. You know, the, I, I, I think about conversations I had a year ago sometimes like, well, why in the hell did I say that? I'm a moron. And that takes sometimes as much weight as, you know, some of the biggest mistakes I've made in my life. But it, it got me thinking about how, you know, the fact that the business you guys are in trains you to not to focus so hard on the minutia of what you're doing right and wrong. And yet the rest of it just goes out the window, you know, and the, Jackie Stewart talks in the, talks about, you know, in the 1960s when they were literally in Formula One going to a, a funeral a month, sometimes more. And the fact that they had compartmentalized that to go back to what we were talking about earlier. Right. But I, I don't understand how you, and this is not a, a knock at all. It's just, I, it's one of those things that I can't process how you, how, how you can reconcile something that can do that to people, something that can take that much away from somebody like Rob or take, you know, in, in a larger sense, take like the guy's guy was incredible in a car and still is. It's just different. I don't understand how that can be reconciled with the way the rest of the sport works and the fact that everybody just gets up and keeps going on, except that's what you do the rest of life. Right. Did you, it, was it ever harder to, did you have to put that sort of thing away every weekend or was it just, this is my friend and he's dealing with a thing and that's separate from this. Like how did that, that, that happen? Yeah. I mean, you have to try to separate it. Right. I mean, I think every driver acknowledges that something bad can happen to them. Yeah. <clears throat> that's always been the case. And, you know, I've lost friends behind the wheel of a race car and we strap back in the next day and or the next week and, sure. and go do it again. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I think what you have to remember is, what it gives you and not what it could potentially take away. Right. Right. Um, which sounds insane. It sounds absolutely insane that like there's anything on earth that you'd be like, yeah, I die for that. That's not like your children. Right. Um, but again, we're not, we're not normal people. We don't have the brains of, of a normal person. And so, the the risk is acutely known it's 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 flashed in our face you know luckily these days not as regularly as it used to be um but i think it's just the thrill of what being a racing driver is and what that feels like and what it gives you the sort of fulfillment and purpose that someone who grew up with that dream um you know gets out of driving a race car and competing against others and winning against others, it, it lets you be comfortable with that risk, with that potential loss. And, you know, like, look, like Rob, yeah, he's, he's, he's in a wheelchair and he still straps into a race car yeah. every opportunity he gets and goes <laughs> racing again. And he's still damn good at it. Cause it's like, he could get hurt again. He could get hurt in a different way. It's, it doesn't matter. It's just what it gives him and what it gives all of us that ever did it or continue to do it or will do it one day is this this inexplicable feeling of being alive. <laughs> so you're willing to take that risk because it's almost like it sounds cliche, but it's like, what's life without racing? You know, and when you get to that point where you're like, yeah, you know what, there's a lot of there's a lot in life outside of racing or after racing, then that's your time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for, for most of us, it takes a minute to get to that point because it's just, it's so uniquely special. What, what was it? So you guys were on the same team, right? And, and that had to have been, Rob is a 
is a phenomenal talent. And that there had to have been a strange moment looking at what he was able to do in the car and knowing that you had basically the same tools and you guys were not the same person. How did, how did those conversations work and how, what, how did it change how you look at or looked at what you were good at, what you were bad at and how you went about trying to get better? Well, I mean, it was such a great year, um, for, for us as, as teammates, you know, we, we could lean on each other quite a bit and, um, I learned a lot from him for sure. Um, he helped make me a better driver in that year. And, uh, and I, you know, I helped him get up to speed with IndyCar and it was a, it was sort of a great mix. Um, you know, what, what Robbie was really good at apart from his just inherent natural ability, uh, which for sure eclipsed mine uh was his when you you tied it in with his like relentless perfection not just with himself but what he demanded of the people around him and that was the big thing that i think separated us and something that i really learned from was there were things that i might want within the team or out of the car or whatever it was and i would make that known and if the answer was no or yeah we'll work on it or whatever i'd be like okay well you know let me know if that's something we can do where he was just like no unacceptable (laughs) this is happening figure it out not my problem sort it out and just the the command that he had over the people that worked with him and the, the 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 level that he demanded from them was the same level that he demanded of himself you know he made himself the best possible driver through all the various things that he would do to prepare for a race. And his, his philosophy was something along the lines. I think I'm not putting words in his mouth. The way I saw it was if I'm working this hard to do my job, we're a team. You also have to work this hard to do your job. And I, it's just, it was just never an approach. I was always kind of just like, I need these people to, to get through the weekend and to be able to do my job. So like, I don't want to piss them off and I don't want to push too hard and be known. (laughs) But Rob was just like, absolutely not. You have to, you have to do, you have to perform at this level. Was it hard? Was it it hard to make that shift? I mean, because that's like, I I have the same way. I mean, it took me forever in interviews to interviewing people to, to like get around the fact that I didn't want to say something that was less than polite. And like, I still, it's still my handicap, right? Was it ever hard to make that? Was it hard to make that shift? Oh, for sure. And like, it's, it's funny because I had one experience early in my career that I sort of figured that out on my own. And then I, I just, I, I guess I clocked it down to being a very situational circumstantial thing. Right. And then I realized that teams in a lot of cases create their own monsters, (laughs) you know? And so like, I had an example in my career where it was something that I, I needed that I thought would help me and my group perform better. And it was, yeah, okay. We'll get, we'll get it. And then it didn't happen in the next race. Hey, what about, yeah, okay. We'll get it at some point. We'll work, we're working on it. We'll, you know, noted. And then next race still wasn't there. And then I think, I think it was by the third or fourth race, whatever it was, I just had a meltdown and next race I had it. And I was like, you guys are such assholes. Like I gave you, (laughs) like you made me do that. I didn't want to behave like that, but you did it by not listening and so I just sort of put it down to the people involved in this particular situation. But I, I think what Rob learned or just was naturally born with was like, yeah, no, that's how it works. Like, I'm going to skip the three nice asks because I know shit only gets done when <laughs> you make a big deal about it. And man, credit to him. Like yeah. that level of perfection, like 
his, his training over in Europe, I think, was vital because when you drive at the level of DTM, you know, for a manufacturer like Mercedes, right. they are militant in right. how they operate. Right. And so for six years, he he grew up essentially as a, as a professional. His his development occurred in this this environment where. Like he was always very hard on himself and always demanded a lot of himself, but the way he was able to demand that of other people after his stint in Europe was was what I think he really gained from his time over there. Because I think working with that group, just the culture of German race engineers and German management and the size of a company like Mercedes, that's just how they operated. And he brought that back with him to the States and it was fascinating to watch. And like I said, it, it helped me a lot. Were you hard on yourself? And after you know, watching him be hard on yourself. Did you think at all about how you were hard on yourself? Because that note doesn't get made unless, you know, it, it clicks something in your head, right? No, I mean, that was, that was never something I struggled with. (laughs) 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 Being hard on myself was strength of mine. Um, No, it's, it's like I told you, I mean, I, 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 the success I had in motorsport, I think came from my work ethic and from always pushing myself because, I would, like I said, I wasn't Kimi Raikkonen when he threw me in a go-kart. I had to really work hard to get there. So um, I was very, I think all athletes are super self-critical. That's what, that's what gets you to the top, right? I think you have to be like, you have to really hate yourself some days. To, to <laughs> what about all the days? Yourself. I hate myself all the days. Is it, can I be an athlete? I feel like this is possible. I can do this. But you're better at what you do because of it. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's what I tell myself. And that's what I tell my Jewish mother and everything. It all works. It's fine. Well, okay. So, so one more thing though. So what, everything you just described about Rob was, was all that stuff in there in him as a person? Like, was he the same guy he was when he was little, when you knew him growing up? Yeah. I I think fundamentally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I think he was a little more, because remember like we, we raced together up until he went to Europe at 17 or whatever it was. And, you know, the Rob that I raced against back then was a little more carefree in, in a lot of ways, but not in how he approached his racing, you know, just sort of like the rest of the race week, like the rest of the weekend outside of the car was maybe a little more lackadaisical. Uh, but you know, at that point you're a 17 year old kid, you know, racing junior formula by the time you're a professional and, and I mean, he, I mean, he essentially made it to F1, right? He was a test yeah. driver. He had, a, he had a deal on the table that got swiped away because some kid had 50 million bucks or whatever. Um, but he was an F1 level talent and, uh, and then, you know, he's had an incredible career over in, over in touring cars. But yeah, I mean, fundamentally he was always, a he was always very focused, worked very hard, worked on himself and, uh, and that, that never went away. One, one last thing, and then, then we kind of have to do our, our wrap up on this, but what you mentioned earlier that he, he taught you a lot and, and I love the idea that he, he taught you or, or just, you know, cause the, the, the best way that people teach is by example, right? Where you look and see something's possible, whatever it is. And then you go, oh shit, I can pull that off or it works for me, or it just, that's, there's something in there I can take away. But what, what else did, what changed about your driving, about how you worked with the team, about how you thought about any of it after that year? And I don't mean after the accident. I mean, after having that guy, a guy that, you knew very well, but that maybe you hadn't worked with in that caliber, that you hadn't seen that side of him. What changed after that for you? If anything. Well, I mean, it's tough, right? The, uh, like I said, I, I am the kind of guy that always benefited from having a, a faster teammate. 
because yeah. it made me faster, right? And I look at my first stint at Andretti and, you know, driving with, with like Ryan Hunter Ray and, um, and Marco. And I, I learned a lot from those guys and they pushed me very hard and, and I pushed them back and we were all better for it. You know, up until uh, Rob came along with my stint at uh, SPM, as it was then known, um, I had kind of been the clear leader. Yeah. And I didn't learn as much as I did in my first three years or as in subsequent years when I was paired with people that could push me a little harder. So, you know, I, I was, I was certainly never afraid from, you know, to inject myself into a situation where I felt like, all right, these, these guys are really good. And if you can compete with these guys, you're going to learn a lot. If you can keep up with them, that's a really good thing. You know, like I remember in 2019, um, Alexander Rossi and I got to do the Bathurst 1000. Oh yeah, a, that's right. Holy shit. I forgot about that. Yeah. Which was just such a cool experience in a yeah. million different ways, but many different reasons. But one of the things, you know, at the time, you know, Rossi was super hot in IndyCar and challenging for titles and all that stuff. And, uh, I was like, I cannot wait for the opportunity to get to work with him in the same car and the same team to try to push ourselves, like see if we can, work on this together and like see how I stack up against him in basically an identical situation. Right. More so than you'd ever get even as teammates in IndyCar because you have different engineers and different cars and different parts and whatever. This was like the best thing ever. Yeah. And it was and it was awesome. And we were very closely matched the whole time. And it was like it was a real fun experience for me to be put up against one of the best in the sport at the time on like basically totally level terms. And <laughs> And see how it like, and a completely new environment too, right? Like we were both like drinking from a fire hose in that deal. <laughs> and that's, and that's like, you know, I don't know. It, anyway, so that was, I, I sort of went a little bit off piece there. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I think, like I said, I think some of those, some of those lessons about how he conduct, it was less about physically driving the car, right? right? Like I knew how to drive a car. Yeah, yeah. He would do a corner better than me. I do a corner better than him, whatever. Um, but yeah, just the way he, the way he approached dealing with the team and just what he demanded out of people was, was a lesson that he really taught me. And I tried to take forward for, uh, for the rest of my driving days. That's cool. So we are unfortunately out of time, but we have this thing we do on the show with everybody. We ask every guest at the end of it, one, one question, same question. And the answer usually says a lot about them, but the whole point is that you're not supposed to think that much. I'm just going to ask the question. Uh, just spit the first, first thing that comes to mind. Sound cool? Sure. Okay. So what's the first thing that goes through your head when things go wrong? Was it my fault? <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. That's officially my favorite answer out of all this. That's my favorite <laughs> answer. People have been like, Oh shit. Or what do I do to fix it? Or no, you, you went right, right to the Jewish, Jewish mother kid. That's uh, that lives yep. in my skull. Was it me? It's yep. probably me. Was it my fault? Can this be held against me in a court of law? Um, <laughs> No, but like it's funny because you say that, and that could be applied to literally anything in yeah, the world. But I right. just I go to I go to a race car. I go to like in being involved in a crash in a race car. You know, if there's another driver or whatever, and the first question is just like, was that my fault? Like you never think it's your fault, but like until you see the replay, you never really know if it's your fault or not. And it's really tough to be objective when you've already made that decision in the race car. So I would always just say I wouldn't say anything. Like nope. I got to watch it because I learned, you know, I, I had times in my career where something happened and I thought it wasn't my fault. And then you see the replay and you're like, 
Yeah. Yeah, it was me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Me, that was me. So then, uh, yeah, that I just, I would never say anything about anything until I got out of the car and saw a replay and then I would make my, my call. But yeah, that's normally, that's normally where my, where my head goes. Right on, man. Well, thank you. Thanks for the time. And, uh, thanks for coming on and being honest. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Absolutely. Had a, had a great chat. Really enjoyed it. All right. Thanks, man.